1: RTE Director-General Kevin Backhurst warns the broadcaster could be insolvent by spring if the government does not step in.
3: You know, we need it by sort of early, early spring next year.
4: And if you don't get it, do you believe RTE will be insolvent?
5: Yes, and I've made that point.
1: A man is arrested following the discovery of skeletal remains in the search for Tina Satchwell. We bring you the very latest from Cork plus we examine the polarizing media coverage of the conflict in the Middle East and look at the impact it's having on.
6: People here are afraid and they're staying in their homes, most of the community, they're not willing to go around with their country flag or not to to walk around because they're afraid that they'll be jumped on the street or hackled or, or anything.
1: First, the discovery of human remains in a house in Youghal, in Cork, has resulted in Gardaí re-arresting a man for questioning about the suspected murder of Tina Satchwell. But Paul Byrne, our Southern correspondent, is standing by in Youghal with the very latest on this. Paul, first of all, just bring us up to date on where we are at with that arrest.
7: Kira, I'm on Grattan Street and behind me is the house that remains sealed off, the house that uh, Tina Satchwell lived for the best part of two years with her husband Richard, uh, who was her husband for uh, 26 years. The house as I said remains sealed off. A man arrested this afternoon, just after midday, across the road from the Sir Walter Raleigh Hotel here in Yall. The man was sitting on a bench in a bus stop and when he was approached by two plainclothes detectives who had been shadowing him for some time. Then an unmarried to guard the jeep pulled up. Another number of officers jumped out. The man got up off the bench that he had been sitting on, folded his arms and moments later he was arrested, put into the jeep and taken to Cove the station where he remains in custody and he's been quizzed on suspicion of murdering Tina Satchwell, the 45 year old who went missing from her home here at Grattan Street in Yall in March of 2017. Remember she went missing and four days later her husband reported her missing. The search has been intensive since then. We had a massive search of woodland outside castle martyr the guard the divers conducted a search of the water very close here to the house on Grattan street and numerous people were interviewed over the years six and a half years and finally on tuesday just at around five o'clock a man was arrested and as he was being picked up by detectives the house here on Grattan street where tina lived was sealed off and late last night human remains were found
1: And the search continued at that site today. What exactly happened, Paul? What can you tell us?
7: Well the state pathologist Dr Margaret Bolster arrived about 11 o'clock this morning she arrived and conducted an examination at the scene she spent about an hour and then at midday a man as I said was arrested and taken into custody he's in Cove the station the parish priest here Father Billy Birmingham came at the request of the guards and carried out what he described as the prayers for the dead and the coffin then with the remains that had been found in the house were removed for post-mortem to Cork University Hospital locals here have been uh, turning up in their droves throughout the last number of days this evening uh, bunches of flowers uh, can be found outside the house and uh, as i said the house remains sealed off the man remains in custody and his period of detention will expire once questioning is up and 24 hours time but tonight there's an eerie silence here in grattan street and hopefully After six and a half years, if the remains of those are identified as uh, Tina Satchwell, well, well hopefully the family can have some closure uh, because six and a half years of not knowing and some very, very difficult heartache. And also tonight, in a window sill in the house next door, a flickering candle.
1: All right, Paul Byrne, our Southern correspondent, thank you for bringing us that update. We'll leave that there for now. Well, RTE returned to face the Public Accounts Committee earlier today. Tensions were high as Director General Kevin Backhurst was quizzed on finances, funding, and failure to release documents. Here to explore this further are Fetafoil TD, Paul McAuliffe. PAC member and Independent TD, Verona Murphy. Ireland editor with the Irish Independent, Fionnant Sheehan. Ocean FM's Claire Ronan and down the line we are joined by media lawyer Andrea Martin. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Fiona, you have been following these committees. I don't know what committee number we're at now. Um, what did you make of what you heard or perhaps didn't hear at that committee today? Well,
0: I, I thought Kevin Backhurst has rightly been commended for the last three months in terms of Coming into RT stabilizing the the situation showing that there was uh, leadership and seeking to build credibility and I thought today was a really bad day for him uh, in in that that period uh seemed to be on the back foot throughout uh seem to be uh, overly defensive on issues when perhaps that wasn't entirely necessary a more conciliatory and diplomatic approach would have served them better uh, ultimately rte is going to be down 60 million in, t- in license fee revenue over the next uh, eight, over an 18 month uh, period the figure today is that basically you have two out of every five people who bought tv licenses this time last year are now not buying them and you'd have to say after today I wouldn't be surprised if that figure went up uh, even even further. There was a feeling that we were back to square one uh, again. There are points of principle that people can set out uh, on, on various different issues. It is your obligation, if you are in a state body appearing before the National Parliament, to show a bit more respect to the National Parliament, to be frank, uh, and to fi- try and find solutions uh, to the questions that you are being asked uh, rather than just flat out uh, refusals.
8: Is the
1: tension really now that I suppose Kevin Backhurst says look there's all these investigations going on, we'll answer your questions and we get the results of those, but now we need to talk about finances, we need to talk about money in this organisation versus a committee that still has though, these questions, these outstanding questions about governance and accountability. Is that where the well, tension the, the, is? The,
0: the, the tension is that the committee is answerable to the people the people are the ones who fund RTE. So everybody is, all both the committee and those appearing before it, are looking to, to try and pull in the one direction, uh, and that is uh, to try and restore faith, confidence and trust in RTE. But the TDs are obliged at the same time to represent uh, th- their constituents and their taxpayers' money or their licence fee payers' uh, money, and therefore they are obliged to pose the difficult questions and to seek to get to the bottom of both past... Uh, issues and also put ensure that there are safeguards in place to ensure uh, the likes of this cannot happen again. And certainly, if you start getting the impression that well, lessons haven't really been learned here, then that that is a it is a difficult one. I thought it was a tricky one for the committee today to basically be in a position where they're now about they're four or five months in here uh, since since June and they're they're still not getting what you'd regard as satisfactory responses or indeed efforts to provide satisfactory responses.
1: Okay, uh, Verona Murphy, just look at the finances for a moment. You were the person in that clip who asked, is the organisation going to be solvent come the new year? And the answer you got was no. So it appears the financial situation is pretty dire. Do you think it could come to that?
4: Yeah, I do, uh, pretty much, because we're not getting answers. And as Finan says, we are actually elected representatives and the PAC is about public finance and how we spend the public's money and accountability for that. So I think when Mr Backhurst initially told us that they had £68 of a cash reserve... What followed on was that they have 20 20 million or less than 20 million set aside for legal claims that they anticipate from previous WRC cases in relation to those who were self-contracted but were actually being self-employed but were actually not. And that 20 million is part of that 68. If the bank were to call in its loans uh, at 65 million, um, which has happened, certain other entities in this country, as well as that 20 million were fell due. They are insolvent. So, I mean, it is, there's no doubt about it. We need to get to the end of this. Mr. Backhurst, as the DG, needs to get to the end. But unfortunately, he has made several pronouncements, Kira, where he says that it's everything is going to be very transparent. We need to restore trust and confidence. And at the very first opportunity to do that, he hides behind client confidentiality and legal privilege that we believe in the committee unitedly doesn't exist and it's part of our legal advice and I think It doesn't instill confidence. What it really does is give the perception to the public that there is something to hide here. We don't want anything to be hidden. If we're going to give more money, and it is going to be more of the taxpayers' money, in effect, to bail out RTE, there has to be a Root & review. review that is sincere. And Mr Backhurst was not putting that across today. I spoke to a senior counsel this evening. He's scratching his head in relation to what the client privilege is, but... He also says it can be waived by Kevin Backhurst. And that's where we're stuck on the basis that why make this an issue? Because he says there's a wider issue here. Well, the The senior counsel says, well, well, no, I think what he said later was that they don't, they're concerned about setting a precedent. The legal information I have this evening is that no precedent can be set because we have a very unique set of circumstances that we're dealing with and that it would be judged in that regard and what the information we, we require is justifiably required. OK, and I
1: want to come back to this legal note that seemed to be the cause of so much tension at the committee today. But, Paul, back to this issue of finances and insolvency and timelines here. It is now almost the middle of October. We're going to get this plan from RTE, we think, by the end of this month, beginning of next month, about how they're going to cut costs. But if we don't get that information and we don't get that transparency, are you going to be happy to put money into this company again again, and are you concerned now at the timelines? We're talking January, no money. We're in mid-October now.
9: Yeah. Well, look, I think the first thing is, is Fiona is right, today was an opportunity for RTE to stem the tide of, of people not paying their licence fee. And it was a missed opportunity by RTE. So as well as savings that they might make, or additional money that the Joint Oireachtas Committee uh, may, uh, and, and the Minister m- might make, there's also an opportunity for RTE to fight for the licence fee that people that, that for people to pay. And there was no attempt, I believe, today, uh, for them to build confidence with people and to show them that, that they were willing to, to be accountable for what happened. Uh, okay, but the for, trend
1: is people are not paying their licence fee. Two out of five people not going to. But that, that's pay not it a hand.
9: trend. That's and not a trend that should be accepted in the sense that RTÉ. Should be fighting for it, and the way they do that is by being accountable. The Public Accounts Committee is different than the Joint Directors Committee. We're not talking about the future media. We're not talking about uh, the, the, the bigger issues. We're talking about the issues that happened here in regards to the Tri-Party agreement and, and, and the issues around that. Okay, and but in, back to the and, and issue. And the way, I you, the way you instill confidence, see. but the way you instill confidence in the in the in the, in the, in the, uh, the fee payers' uh, mind is you provide that accountability and you, you, you indicate things have changed. Okay. They haven't yet done that.
1: So are you happy at this point in time to hand over more money to RTE? I, I,
9: I think until we get the the, the, the the reports coming to the Minister and until all of the documentation comes to us, I'm not prepared to make any commitments to RTE, although I would make one commitment, and I think most people on the uh, on the Public Council Committee are in agreement on this, we do need public sector broadcasting. That doesn't have to exclusively be delivered by RTE. So just RTE, to be clear, if you don't do get need... this
1: legal note from Kevin Backhurst if he doesn't waive this privilege and hand over this legal note, no money.
9: Well, that's not a decision for me, but I have to but say... That, that would
1: be your position? There
9: would be a huge question if RT are not position. forthcoming and have not turned over an leaf and have not demonstrated that they've changed. I think it would be very difficult for any politician to support...
1: Uh, future funding. OK, just very briefly, Claire, and we are talking about this legal note and people might not know what this actual legal note refers to. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what the legal note refers to. I mean, is it the seventh, the seventh mystery solved? Why won't they give us the information? Here, they have lost the trust of the public. People here, 60 million, 40 million, all of those figures, what they're worried about is paying for their TV licence and where that money is going. And after today, exactly as everyone here has said, it really left you, there was a feeling of no transparency at all. And even a hint that they would actually take a legal case with our taxpayers' money will not make people happy at all. And I have to say, with regarding the committee today, I think a lot of the members, all of the members who spoke, and particularly Alan Kelly, said what an awful lot of people were sitting at home thinking. OK, I just want to play this uh, clip between uh, Alan Kelly and Kevin Backhurst a little earlier today. Take a look.
8: We're the people who have to vote on whether we give you money. The taxpayers are watching this. So you don't get to see our legal advice. You should withdraw that. Right? This is a pivotal moment for you. If it ends up in a scenario whereby this goes through, where we have to compel this, it could end up legal, it could end up in the courts, your position won't be tenable. Mm-hmm. I think you need to reflect. In fact, we're taking a break soon. I think you need to reflect during that break. Because I don't believe in a scenario where you should be in and out of here every couple of months. I actually wanted to end today. We we'll can't end until this is provided.
1: Fiona, what happened after that?
0: Well, th- there was a break afterwards and the, the RTE team basically came back and their, their position hadn't altered. They basically said that we can't provide the legal note on a point of principle. And just,
1: just remind people what's on this. So there, there was
0: a, a meeting in May of 2020 uh, between D Forbes and Noel Kelly who was the agent to Ryan Tuberley and this was where the the famous Renault deal was being discussed.
1: And, and this at commitment that meeting, to underwrite it. There was
0: a commitment that, that if Renault didn't pay up or if the deal somehow fell apart that RTE would pay the bill uh, in effect. And that's Pivotal because RTE, as we know, did pay the bill. And Kevin Backer is now telling us he thinks Ryan Tubbury should pay back the money. So RTE end up paying, directly or indirectly, three tranches of 75 grand over the following two years, which has led us to where we are now. The committee's argument is they want to see effectively the minutes of that meeting. RTE are saying, because a legal lawyer, a legal representative of RTE was present, that it comes under privilege. They are also saying that basically that D, Noel Kelly has provided documentation related to that, that meeting and D Forbes has spoken to, to a Grand Torrent investigation and that they don't demur do from anything that, that, that they have said. RT are saying, this is a point of principle. If we're forced to hand over this note, then we can be forced to hand over other notes about more serious matters in relation to editorial investigations.
1: Okay, I just want to go to Andrea Martin on this. What is your read of this legal note? Should they waive the privilege or does it set a precedent? Because it did lead to a lot of tension today and this feeling that RTE isn't being transparent.
2: Well, I've got to be absolutely honest and speak as a lawyer and also speak as a lawyer who over 20 years ago worked um, in RTE. So I can understand the uh, professional uh, approach that would be taken by the RTE uh, lawyers. What I will say is I think that is one very, very unhappy and very uncomfortable looking Kevin Backhurst, um, uh, who is caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. That client privilege can be, its it's solicitor, uh, excuse me, it is solicitor-client privilege um, and if there is any legal advice contained in that note, whether the lawyer said anything that, was, uh, that could cause difficulties at a later stage, um, uh, it is RTE's right to have that um, uh, kept private because RTE is held accountable for its actions, not the advice of its lawyers. Um, and if this happens time and again...
1: Sorry, you do have that. You have the option to waive privilege.
2: They could waive that privilege. Uh, we don't know what the consequences of that may be. Whether that would have implications for the relationship with D Forbes, the contractual relationship with uh, Noel Kelly. So I can't. I can only speculate. But speaking as a lawyer, I can understand why there could be difficulties. But I think it has put Kevin Backhurst in an impossibly difficult situation, and that discomfort and difficulty registered on his face today uh, and in his in his attitude. And I think it's unfortunate it happened, but I think they are in an extremely difficult situation. As I say, I speak as a lawyer, so I understand from a lawyer's point of view the the point they are making. Um, and I think it rather than go head to head on this, uh, in 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 uh, in the pack or making this a condition precedent mm. to any effective bailout uh, of RTE while it reorganizes its affairs, questions should be answered as to whether this is the core issue or not. Is this effectively a sideshow or is it a core? Yeah. Issue.
1: Okay, let me just put that back to my panel. Why is this yeah. particular note so important? In what way would it change our understanding or the narrative around what happened? Tonight? Yeah,
9: Let me explain that here because people m- might get lost in all of it. So the reason why the note is really important is because Ortiz's argument is that Dee Forbes was the only person that knew all of the moving parts. And this note, was. Uh, their, their second argument is, is that the indemnity uh, was the key reason why they had to make these payments. Now, this meeting is where the indemnity was conceded, and there were multiple parties at the meeting, D Forbes, Noel Kelly, and the RTE solicitor. The note of that meeting is really important because it will prove RTE's case, or we will see a gap in
1: it. We think, if that's what's in there Yeah, and, and okay.
9: so and but, but here, if we do not see that... We can only ask the question, why are they not providing it? And the idea, yes, there's a, a, a risk, and there's always a risk when you waive uh, uh, client confidentiality, but they have to balance the risk. The risk of the public not having confidence in them providing this note versus the possible risk of way of, of, way of the legal privilege, and I, I have to say, Kevin Backhurst was very uncomfortable today. But he has to make the right decision here to instil confidence in, 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 in both in the Did investigation. In the
1: High Court, do you think?
9: Well, we, co- well com- co- I mean, I know co- well,
1: principle uh, co- yeah, uh,
9: uh, we, we made that decision today to compel, to documents. compel the documents.
0: U- ultimately, you'll go down the High Court, and it will come down to an argument, then a strictly legal argument about uh, attorney-client privilege. Uh, and RTE will present their case, and then the committee will present theirs. Considering Shocking. this is a document that RTE are saying is so inconsequential that we know everything that's in it already, and we don't, we don't need, you don't don't need to see it. I, I, it's very difficult to understand why some sort of side meeting can't be had between the director general or the chair of RTE and the chair of the PSE to say, can we just talk this out? Privately and take take the heat out of it. Instead, it has now been elevated to this is the key entire piece of evidence in the entire saga.
4: What, and, and what he, I, he's I, also I, saying
9: I, there's nothing in it. But he's also but, said he hasn't read it.
4: All right. But okay. equally, equally to expose the public purse to that type okay. of compelling you know, that we've got to go to the High Court and spend money on both sides is a ridiculous and when you're trying to restore trust and confidence. All
1: right, look, I'm going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Kerr Vernon and to Andrea Martin. After the break, we delve into the divisive media coverage and social media coverage of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Do stay with us. Israel continues to bombard Gaza with airstrikes. Palestinians have been left desperate for food, fuel and medicine. The number of people who have vacated their homes in the region stood at 340,000 as of last night. Well, earlier today, in a truly heartbreaking interview with CNN, an Irish man living in Israel, Thomas Hand, recounted his grief at the loss of his eight-year-old daughter, Emily, at the hands of Hamas militants.
3: They just said, We found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, Yes! I went, Yes! And smiled. Because <laughs> that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. <sighs> that was the best possibility. That I was hoping for. She was either dead or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. That is worse than death. The way they treat you. They'd have no food. They'd have no water. She'd be in a dark room filled with Christ knows how many people. And Day and possible years to come. So, death was a blessing, an absolute blessing.
1: Thomas Hahn speaking to CNN earlier today about the death of his daughter Emily. Well, the divisive nature of this conflict has dominated the media and seeped into conversation in wider society. Zara King spoke with Irish Israeli woman Bar Clara Mendes McConnell, who claimed that she is now afraid to leave her home
6: one of the one of the people on, on the team that i lead um described it as survival's guilt a lot of us are feeling terrible that we're here many of us took actually flights back and um, to be with family to be beloved ones despite that being the the more dangerous solution because people felt that they just can't stay away from from their families many also feel fear um, because in pa- in the past um there seemed to be a a, a notion in ireland that is a very kind of twisted misconception, that the reality is either you're pro-Israeli or you're pro-Palestinian. And many in Ireland make you feel like um, you're unwanted if you're Israeli. And in times like this, it's very, very hard. Um, And people don't realize that majority of Israelis believe in a two-state solution. Majority of Israelis believe in peace. I think the people in Ireland don't understand that. And then a lot of the hate and anger that they feel over casualties on the Palestinian side, which we also feel, that's that's the heartbreaking thing. We we look at the casualties on both sides and it breaks our hearts. People here take it out of context and think that it's either or and to understand that we just have to find a way to coexist. And people here are afraid and they're staying in their homes, most of the community. They're not willing to go around not with their country flag or not to, to walk around because they're afraid that they'll be jumped on the street or hackled or or anything.
4: Well,
1: on that clip that we played first, absolutely, I think, just devastating for any parent to see that and scenes today of you know babies lined up outside hospitals in gaza and hospitals in gaza becoming effective morgues and yet it has really struck me today looking at social media and looking at media across the world how they're covering the story how polarized and that last contributor spoke about it there people are in one of two camps you're pro-palestine it appears or pro-israel and there's no nuance would you agree with that well the-
3: Yeah, but
0: uh, on behalf of the the Irish government tonight, the the Taoiseach has set out a a nuanced position. He has said that the Israeli people have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to go after Mm -hmm. Hamas, be it that, in in Gaza uh, or or elsewhere. But he has said that the collective punishment of the people of Palestine uh, is wrong. And he also expressed the view that it's a it's a, a breach of international human rights. So th- there is there are people who have a, a middle ground view that are of the view that you know an eye for an eye is not the the, the correct way uh, to go about things if it involves uh, the death of of more uh, innocent people. But as you say, yeah, that that, that there, there would appear to be people adopting the view that you are on one side or the other.
1: Yeah, and you hear that from that last contributor who said that as an Israeli person living in Ireland now, that she feels that it is pro-Palestine here and that a lot of her community feel unsafe to leave the house.
9: Yeah, look, and I think a lot of Irish people, because of our own history, uh, appreciate the struggle for independence. Um, but I think Ireland has also developed over the last 100 years a very strong commitment to, the, to humanitarian principles. And the idea that civilians will be deliberately targeted uh, in, in an attack uh, is a war crime. I heard Mary Robinson use that phrase today, and I think it's really important. So what happened uh, at the weekend was utterly unacceptable. There is no justification. And Hamas is an organisation that has a jihadist approach uh, to this, unlike the PLO, for, for example. But. We also have to look at that principle of, of a proportionate response. And the response I, from Israel. Yeah, and I don't, I think it is fair to say at this point that the response has not been proportionate. The idea of cutting off electricity, food mo- and restricting the free movement of people and then deliberate, de- deliberate, deliberately uh, bombing civilian areas uh, is wrong. So I don't think those positions are incompatible and I think Irish people uh, do understand that civilians cannot be the victims here. And if we learned anything from the Irish experience, is that you need, do need to de-escalate, you do need to have parity of esteem, and we do need to move uh, towards compromise. But we are a very, very long way from that. And the big fear is, um, is and the Tanisha has said this, the further destabilisation in, in in the region. The addition of Hezbollah in, in, the, in the north, the idea of uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel's uh, relationship deteriorating, Iran further uh, con- contributing to-, to factors. So I think it's incredibly worrying time, given the global instability w- around the war in Ukraine and, and so on.
1: Uh, Verona, Ireland has, I think, taken quite a different position to many other countries in the EU and certainly a very, very different position to the UK and to the US. And we align with them on so many other issues. Why do you think that is? And is it the right stance?
4: I don't know if it's the right stance. I mean, people are, as you said, polarized. I'm pro-peace. I've never seen anything so barbaric and inhumane. I had a little cry this morning when I heard about Kim Dante. I think for Kevin Hand and his daughter, like it's just, it's so indiscriminate and it's so cruel. And I think the reality is that we need to come to conflict resolution pretty quickly. I read Michael MacDool's article today and like, I was asked by your researcher if I believed in the right to self-defence. And of course I do. But like with every right, there are rules and there are responsibilities. And that has to be, if it's a war, we have to follow the rules. And that is that there would be a proportionate response. We would follow international law and it would be humane. And it's none of those things. And I think there has to be a, a very fast conflict resolution.
1: All right, I want to bring in uh, Paul Rogers, who's a professor of peace studies from the University of Bradford. Excuse me, Professor, why do you think this particular conflict, not perhaps what we're seeing, but what we've seen there for a long time, why is it so divisive, do you think? Why do people take such a definite position and perhaps not appreciate some of the nuance?
8: I suppose to put it uh, in historical terms, I mean, uh, the increase in... Jewish immigration into what was called Palestine, now Israel, was over 40, or 50 years, right through to about 1940. It started in the 1890s. Uh, And with the end of the Ottoman Empire, Britain was responsible for uh, Palestine, as it was called, uh, under a League of Nations uh, mandate. Um, There was the very strong war of independence that the Jews fought in Israel, hugely affected by the Holocaust in Europe. and must never forget that. Uh, But since then, it's been really a contested land. To go back to the start, there have been Jews living in Palestine for, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, But there was the feeling when Zionism came on the scene that, you know, this was a land without people for a people without a land. And that Jews from Europe who'd experienced so many problems in the 19th century would at least have somewhere to go. The problem was it wasn't a land without people. And at root, it's almost a contest for that land. Uh, and over the years, um, Israel has become more and more strong. But I think somebody put it pretty wisely that Israel is a country which is impregnable in its insecurity. It is determined to be, to be there and succeed, uh, but in a sense, it is always insecure. And this is why I think the terrible events of last Saturday have come as an incredible shock uh, to so many Israelis. But at the same time, it has meant an extremely strong response, which I think is still in the very early stages. One other thing to remember is that Gaza itself has been akin to a kind of open prison now for what, since probably 2007, when Hamas took over. And that was when the blockade started, in a way. It's become more and more severe. But in that time, Hamas has grown into a very radical movement. One last thing to remember is the last time there was a major conflict between Israel and Hamas was in 2014, the Israeli Operation Protective Edge. And the Israelis tried to take a sort of control of Gaza, or to an extent at least, through troops, failed. They lost some of their elite troops. And they then went on to the bombing side and killed 2,000 Palestinians and injured 10,000 in the space of two or three weeks. Uh, But that led to a ceasefire. But it was in any way a false uh, impression of peace. And what we've now seen is, a, is an upsurge of that, which is hideous in its size. But it's where we are, and I would agree very much with your last speaker, at some stage, this can only be resolved by talking, okay, however difficult that is.
1: I suppose given the fact that so many global players take such a clear position on yes. this, is there a neutral player here that is respected in the region that can intervene? And If there is, who are they?
8: Well, I mean, there are some of the smaller states, I would include Ireland in this, who have a very long record of being involved in different sorts of mediation. I mean, the Irish regular of peacekeeping for the size of the army is probably, it may well be unique in the world. So Ireland is the kind of country that does. But I mean, essentially, what we're looking at bluntly is larger states that are powerful states. And no, there aren't really any at present. You have the UN doing its very best. And in Israel and in Palestine, the occupied areas of Palestine, you have very good people. You know, my own department has students who graduated in peace studies from the Palestinian part, from the Israeli parts, and are active now in trying to bring peace. But it's incredibly difficult because Israel is also, to some extent, seen as a sort of a bulwark for some Western interests against all the problems that are stemming from the wider war on terror. But that war on terror has to be remembered. You know, there were warnings right back after 9-11 that if the United States went to war with uh, the Taliban and with al-Qaeda, it would be getting into a trap. Okay. And, I mean, that is what has happened 20 years later. You have the Taliban in control. And this is why it is so important now, I think, that you've got to find some way of bringing the sides together, however almost impossibly difficult it might be.
1: All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Paul Rogers, as always, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. My thanks to my panel here, Paul McAuliffe, uh, Verona Murphy and Fionon Sheehan. Well, coming up after the break, we will be looking ahead to the big match at the weekend. Ireland take on the All Blacks. Can they do it? You're very welcome back. Well, this weekend, the Irish rugby squad faced their biggest challenge yet, as they take on the All Blacks in the Stade to France for the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup. Tommy Martin sent this report from Paris just before we came on air.
5: Well, it's fairly quiet on the streets of Paris right now, but all that will, of course, change in the next 48 hours or so when the Green Army marches on the French capital once again for Saturday's World Cup quarter-final uh, against New Zealand. Will they be singing zombie in the fields of Athen Rye by the end uh, of the game? Well, the team, for their part, uh, they had a rest day today, no training session uh, for Andy Farrell's men, so that meant that all the focus was on the New Zealand camp. now. We uh, attended the team announcement at their team hotel earlier on today. And the big news uh, from New Zealand is that one of their star players, Mark Talea, you might remember him scoring two tries against France uh, on the opening night of the tournament. Really talented player. He has been dropped for the Ireland game for disciplinary reasons uh, head coach ian foster would only say that there had been a breach of squad protocol and the coaches and players had agreed that talia should be dropped for the game um, foster tried to play it down said it wasn't a big row a big issue but it's hardly the ideal preparations uh, for such uh, a big game it is of course this strange phenomenon of a game between Ireland and the All Blacks in which Ireland go in as very slight favourites. Indeed, one of the New Zealand bookmakers announced earlier uh, in the week that for the first time in their history, they were uh, favouring Ireland for a game between the two nations. And that's something that at the New Zealand camp earlier this evening, when we heard from uh, some of their coaches and players, they were all playing on, all trying to put the pressure on Ireland. They kept using the phrase Ireland are the best team in the world. The best team in the world right now. Trying to see, with the pressure, uh, I guess, get to Ireland on Saturday night. Andy Farrell and his players, for their part, they keep saying that this team is different. Uh, This team will not fold like uh, previous teams have done at the quarterfinal stage. Uh, And uh, they hope that that will be enough to see them through to a semi-final for the first time ever. We should know if they're right in, what, about 48 hours or so.
1: Tommy Martin speaking just a little earlier um, before we came on air. Well, joining me to discuss this further in studio, we're joined by two former Irish rugby internationals that have faced the All Blacks and lived to tell the tale, Shane Byrne and Malcolm O'Kelly. I should point out, you didn't beat the All Blacks when you guys were playing, did you?
10: No, thanks for pointing that out. Let's just put that out there good and and early. We did
11: come close on occasion, but um, didn't quite get there.
1: Speaking, okay, of this big match, right, on Saturday, they have built up at this point, haven't they? Quite the rivalry, Malcolm, with the All Blacks.
11: Yeah, undoubtedly, it's yeah, it's a, it's a modern day rivalry for sure. Um, 2016, Ireland beat uh, New Zealand for the first time in Chicago. And since then, they've played eight times and Ireland won five times, which is, you know, for New Zealand, uh, in like the, the fact that New Zealand have been so dominant in, in rugby for so many years, it's, it's, it's really an incredible rivalry over the last few years.
1: That would suggest, if you were a betting person, that the odds are in our favor. Is there any psychological impact given the fact that we have never progressed beyond the quarterfinals before? Is that playing in their mind, do you think, Shane?
10: No, not this setup. Um, I think that was the challenge that Andy Farrell had getting this team ready. We knew they were fantastic, fantastic athletes, great rugby players, great game plans, great leaders, etc. All he want, need, really needed to get ready was the mindset. And the mindset has been absolutely perfect, as we've seen so far, right the way through the group stages. And there's no indication that there's any cracks in that whatsoever. So they're just taking each game as it goes and ironically you would probably say the way our quarterfinals is set up is that we could have either played France or New Zealand we've got New Zealand it's the perfect thing to make us don't think about the the quarterfinal hoodoo we all have to think about it as supporters it's on our minds but the players are focusing very much on the game they're not thinking about this at all they're just focused on the game beating New Zealand and there's there's nothing that we've seen in the World Cup so far that says that they can't do that.
1: No, they do have, from the games that I've watched, there is this sort of innate confidence this time, this sort of determination, this focus that I haven't seen for a very long time. Is that what it's going to come down to, do you think, Mike, Malcolm, on the day, the mindset?
11: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something Andy Farrell has definitely brought in since he's, he's taken over the helm. Um, the culture within this squad is... Uh, is something I think any any previous player has never quite experienced, uh, and they've taken that to another level. As Shane said, there, Ireland are great athletes, uh, and but what they now have is this is this mindset. Um, but they also have great leaders, which I think has helped develop that mindset. Uh, Johnny Sexton uh, has been. Um, instrumental as a as a kind of leader and guide on the pitch. Like he's guiding the, this, these young guys around the pitch, telling them where to go, what to do. And also some of the senior guys like Peter Romani and these guys have, are playing incredible rugby, the best rugby, Bundy is playing the best rugby of his, of his, career? Of his career.
1: In terms of the, the mindset, what is Johnny Saxon's mindset? What does he like to play with?
11: Um, Johnny is uh, certainly determined Uh, He's determined. Uh, He is. uh, He likes to be the boss, Um, and the position that he's in, it suits. It suits him to be the boss.
1: And he's Uh, always been like that. You would say, wouldn't you? You played with him. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I
11: remember his first game, and he was he was very uh, direct with me in terms of uh, even though I was probably his senior by by ten years, I was at at ninety caps for Ireland at the time. We're playing a, a a. a, a Welsh provincial team, and he was very curt with me about uh, um, you know. I think I was telling him to get back ten meters or something like that. Like, and he told me where to go. You know, and he didn't. Uh, he didn't respect fine. your seniority. <laughs> that's, that's fine. At least I know where, where I stand. You know, uh, but he's a he's a great guy. Uh, the, I think the All-Irish lads are very obviously very aware that this is is his last his last swan song and um, i think we'll get a huge performance from them the collective to make sure that it's not his last
1: day and joe schmidt being on the other side Mm. does that make a difference do you think does that in or in what way do you think that could help inform the all blacks preparation for this game like does he know the inside secrets or has the game and the team and the management changed to such a degree that it's unfamiliar to him.
10: Yeah, it's the latter. The Keith Earls uh, referred to it in one of his interviews. I think during the week, is that he said the team has moved on from where it was with Joe Schmidt. All of the the good habits and everything that they learned with him, they they've now changed them and, and moved on to a different setup completely. Like his insight, I don't think will assist because all he would have is the ins, you know, his insight into how strong mentally these guys are. The the Peter O'Mahony's, you know, the, the Johnny Sexton's that we've been talking about, he'll know how focused those guys are. He'll know how absolutely ruthless they can be when they need to be. And, uh, you know, I can't see how that's going to, uh, to assist them. You know, Ireland are playing a superb brand of rugby at the moment that challenges defences, really, really makes it almost impossible if the right decisions are made, which they are at the, at the moment. But the important thing with Ireland is that when we don't have the ball, as we saw against South Africa, we're still very comfortable as well. And uh, that's the key. So I don't know if his insight... Look, he was very, very important to everything that Irish rugby did during his time. But this team has moved on.
1: Where, maybe we shouldn't be saying this, where's the weak spot on our team?
11: On the Irish team. Or is there? Um, Well, to go back uh, a step, what Joe Schmidt could possibly bring, I, I believe his main role is defense. So he'll be looking at Ireland's attack and seeing where, where there's frailties or where there's uh, ability to read the attack, because that's the key to an attack, is being able to read the play. So if New Zealand can read our plays, then they stop us from penetrating. And if we can't get any penetration, then um, we're gonna just kick the ball away. So it's very important for us, our attack has been unstoppable um, over the last couple of years. So that'll be that'll be the challenge for Joe and um, whether or not he, we all hope that he can't, of course. And as Shane said, perhaps the Irish team has moved on, you know, in that regard.
1: So, if you had to call it, <laughs> if you had to call it, Shane, will we do it on Saturday?
10: Yeah, I, I genuinely think we will. I, I think... If you look at form, don't get carried away with anything else. There's been nothing we've seen from New Zealand to, see, to show that they could play as well. They would, they would need to play better than they have played this season, not just in the World Cup, this season.
1: Whereas we just need to play the way we've and been where, playing?
10: Yes, and Ireland would need to dip in form, and that's the key. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think that Ireland are going to come out, and like they did in the first half against Scotland, fire very, very strong and challenge this, this New Zealand side. Don't take it for granted. New Zealand are a fantastic team. We will need to play very, very well, but an Ireland win is gonna be.
1: An Ireland win, and are you saying an Ireland win, and if you're saying yeah. an Ireland win, I'm gonna to get totally carried away and say, quarter semifinals is ours, and the World Cup <laughs> is ours. Is this our best chance?
11: Uh, well, it's certainly our best chance that we we've ever had this team are primed they've a huge amount of experience at winning they're on an incredible winning streak at the moment um and New Zealand aren't. They're, they're, they're at sixes and sevens. They've got a lot of new guys in. And so, yeah, I think Ireland are going to win this. Uh, maybe not as comfortably as Shane suggests, but... Uh, it's <laughs> Wait, gonna be, so it's, it's going to be, be a tough 80 win. minutes. Yeah. It's
1: going to be a yeah, tough watch. So. I'm really yeah. really looking forward to it. Uh, that's it from us. Thanks to Shane and Malcolm for joining us. Virgin Media's coverage of Ireland versus New Zealand will be live from 10am to 7 on Saturday here on Virgin Media. Media one you do not want to miss it from all the late team here. Good night.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've
1: ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.